the philosophy of psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 30, Mental Time Travel, Emotion and Memory. So we, our sort of theory with all the other people who are writing in this area is that it does look as though the overgeneral memory phenomenon has got something to do with the way people experience emotion and that they may actually be trying to avoid emotion and accidentally avoid full autobiographical memory in the process. They don't get access to this sensorially vivid um, personal past. You can sort of say, well, why does that matter? Like, why do we need to remember the past in textual, exquisite sensory detail? Well, it turns out that if you're interested in mental time travel, as it's called now in philosophical literature, although it was Sudendorf and Corbalis from um, Auckland Union, psychologists who really started to write about mental time travel. But there's this suggestion that how well you can breathe life into the future, how compelling you find the future to be, it hinges on how fully you experience your emotion and how richly you remember the past in terms of autobiographical details. If you've just got semantic memory for the past or you don't have much feeling about the past, it's very easy for you to think, well, now's the only thing that matters, and later, who cares, that's later. Um, and unfortunately, that can result in us behaving in ways that are quite short-sighted. If you think about the Fukushima disaster in Japan, for instance, um, there was evidence you know, in, from 2001 on that the safety standards of that nuclear power plant were woefully out of date. Okay, um, Geological evidence. By the time the Sumatran tidal wave had occurred, we had very real experiential evidence that mega waves would occur, but nobody um, acted in that way. So if you just focus on now, and you don't look at either the remote past in a fleshed out sort of way, it's very hard for you to construe the future in a compelling way, like what would life be like without you know, fossil fuels, without cars, or if there were sort of like nuclear damage throughout the oceans and things like that. We don't want to think about it. It's too painful. And so we, we buy away from it. But in a sense, we have to live in time in that way. We have to mental time travel to really be kind of good, active citizens and to take very seriously our knowledge, not just at a semantic level, but, but what that would mean for future generations. And in our own best interests, that's what prudential action is. If, if I know although this is a very bad example, if I know that I get a hangover from drinking too much champagne, theoretically, I shouldn't drink champagne. But, you know, if a prudential action occurs, then of course we all know the results of that. But hopefully that's not the case with every um, domain in life. So there's two-way interaction between personality and memory. Sure, parts of your personality shape your memories, but your memories also shape your personality. And the past, in this way, by shaping your personality, can shape the present that you live through and the future that you set up for yourself. And that's why this all matters. Um, Wojcan Polo um, found that if you've got people that are high on a personality variable called communality, because they're slightly more touchy-feely and social, they remember more interpersonal events than do agentic. But interestingly, it's not just the content of what they remember, but the structure of their memories is different too. They seem to link their memories together more. So it's as if that whole thing about being linked into your social group 
leads to a linking in of your memories as well. If you want to get really critical, they use some sort of like median split in their data. So I'd love to get their data and reanalyze it without the median splits. But given that median splits usually makes things go worse for you, chances are it's a robust finding. That's just a little methodological heads up. You don't have to worry about it. They're only talking about, uh, they're talking about correlation in that because it's only a cross-sectional design. And that's a very good question you ask because if you look up all of their other studies, because I thought they might have followed that same bunch longitudinally, but it's actually, it seems to be something of the same data sets that they reanalyze across an array of papers, which is not so great, eh? So, so yes, it would be fabulous to follow through and see which, which causes which. People normally think personality variables shape memories rather than in that moment, rather than the other way around, because your personality is already existing at the moment that you're doing the recollecting. And the way that you assess um, agency and communion heaps of different scales, but just conceptually, agency is where you focus on yourself as an individual, and it's all about self-assertion, self-expansion, self-control. And communion is where you're not the issue. You're caught up in something much larger, and you're much more cooperative and attached and connected. Another way that um, researchers suggested that personality and memory have reciprocal causations is the study by Charles et al., which I write up in my paper, already filtered, 2006. Um, what they did was they looked at daughters who had had difficult times separating from their mothers in their teen years. And they found that this was linked to the mother herself having had difficulty separating from her mother in her teen years. And what, to cut a, a very long short story short, the finding was that if you had negative experiences, in other words, if negative affect was at the heart of the story, then the coherence of your story only made one sort of difference. That is, it only determined or was associated with how the past influenced the present. It didn't stop the past from influencing the present. And they were really sad, because I think they were coming from a kind of attachment theory point of view. And from an attachment theory point of view, the, the sort of assumption is, it doesn't matter what you've been through, if you can make a coherent story of it, you'll be okay. And these guys are basically saying, you can have a coherent story of it, but you're still going to repeat the past in some way, unfortunately. So that it's a bit of a sad finding, even though it's a very interesting theoretical finding from an affect point of view. So here's just a couple of little details that fascinate me. Mothers who saw their own mothers as having been constraining, and these mothers could tell quite coherent stories about that, those mothers had daughters who were superwomen, like absolutely defensively independent. And unfortunately, those daughters, in reflecting on their own mother, saw them as critical, domineering, unsupportive, unable to accept the daughter's separation without guilt-tripping them. Okay, so, that's, so even a coherent story meant that there was some uh, reproduction of difficulty, if you like, in the separation experience. Mothers who didn't have a coherent story, who, whose stories were all over the place and conflictual in regards to how their mothers had promoted autonomy, had enmeshed daughters, like daughters who found it really difficult to separate out. And they, they were the ones who had heated rebellions and uneasy truces. So either way, 
it wasn't looking good. They expected coherence to win out and prevent this repetition of the past, but that wasn't what they found, unfortunately. And their conclusion was that mothers with incoherent narratives were blind to the past, but mothers with coherent narratives were blind to the fact that they were repeating the past in the present in some way. So that's just dovetailing that study in, in a new theme in the lecture course, just to show you that you can use these studies in different ways. What I want to focus on now is the fact that whenever you recollect a memory, it's a rehearsal in a sense. But if you rehearse only certain features of your past, that seems to weaken the memories that you don't rehearse. So beware the stories you tell, because the other bits will fall into oblivion and be forgotten. And this is because recollections are often performances for an audience in some ways. And so there are two stories, really, two sources. There's the original experience of what happened, and then there's the story that you always tell of that experience. When I was doing research two years ago, it was still very fresh, um, there was one fabulous memory of a guy who had always told a story about just having escaped getting beaten up when he and his friend had harassed some hoons in a country road by not letting them pass. But then he said, having told this about 17 times, he's telling it in the presence of one of the guys that was also in the car. And the, one of the guys that was in the car said, yeah, but do you remember you lay in the dust with your hands over your head going, I'm only the hitchhiker, don't beat me up. And the guy was going, and that part of the story had slipped his mind. <laughs> he never remembered that bit until someone brought it to him. And the experimental way that they do this is to get you to write accounts of a series of events for a particular audience. Then they distract you, and then you get, they get you to remember the events again. And what they find is that the delayed memory has been biased by that original account that you've been asked to give for an audience. So it's almost like you think they're separate tasks, but there's some kind of carryover in memory terms. I think highly reflective people, there might not be so much carryover because they might, you know, be more careful to package and bundle. That would be something that would be interesting to research. Okay, so what I've suggested is that narratives organize things downstream, like your emotions and your motives, the very events themselves, but also that narratives shape things upstream in that they shape our identity and who we are. How do they operate? Very simply, I suppose. They make us notice certain things, selectivity of interest, and they, they predispose us to understand certain things and not others. So you think about it. People really only hear part of what's being said to them. You notice when you write an email, people reply to you. They'll usually only reply to two out of the four bits of your email. You go, what about the other questions? What was wrong with them? Do you know? Um, also think about going through a new house as a home buyer versus going through a new house as a potential thief. You'd have different interests, unless you were a nervy home buyer. Okay. But it's very easy not to hear things that aren't interpretable through our own experience or through our own interest. And there's also a selectivity of understanding. We tend to understand things more readily that relate to our own experiences. And so, in a sense, we're schematic for those things. Um, and this was Bartlett's original study back in the 30s. He told people weird stories from different cultures, and the people could 
barely reproduce the events because it was all just too strange for them. So he was showing that your that your cultural schemes shape how readily you can take on board and assimilate and accommodate new information. The difficulty is, and this is what Bartlett found, like they were told stories about spirits that went in war canoes and black stuff came out of their mouths and they fell dead and, you know, and rather than keep the strangeness of the story, people kind of smoothed it over and said, well, it was about a reconnaissance voyage up a river to find food or something like that, which of course it wasn't. So that's assimilating the strange de details to scripts that you've already got, rather than going, blowed if I know what was going on in that story. They obviously believed in these spirits that could nonetheless drive canoes and that some kind of strange taint in the form of black stuff was you know, symbolic of something I don't know what. They didn't even leave the strangeness in the stories. They sort of smoothed it all out. So assimilators where facts have to fit your existing structures, accommodation is where your structures have to change because the data doesn't fit. Okay, so that's, that's quite important. If you really want to change in life, accommodation is the way rather than assimilation. So what shapes the quality of your autobiographical memory? Mood congruent memory I've told you about. You can either have an emotional state that's been induced, I can put you in a good mood or a neurotic mood, or I can just measure what mood you're in right now and also measure what moods you tend to be in generally and take that as my baseline. There's two ways of doing that research. I can look at your degree of rumination and your tendency to endure negative affect capture, or I can look at your capacity to reflect. And what you'll find is that people that are high in reflection, they tend not to get caught up in that stream of negative emotions and negative memories. They'll remember positive things to actively try to repair their mood rather than stay in a bad mood. So what shapes the kinds of stories you tell? Well, first and foremost, it's parental scaffolding. Like scaffolds, the things that hold up the building until the building can stand on its own and then you dismantle it. It's like the parents scaffold a lot of your cognitive processes and then gradually remove that support as you become more and more self-sustaining. And that's um, The other thing that shapes, if you think, how well I can handle my emotions, how well I can allow my emotions to come into existence is going to shape my memory. Because if I can cope with my feelings, I can cope with ESK, event-specific knowledge. So how well my parents are attuned to me in my infancy is going to shape my memories later on. If they pick up not just on what I'm saying, but my gestures and my vocal tone, how was school today? All white. You know, like school obviously wasn't all white. And an attuned parent doesn't go, oh, that's nice, dear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like, oh, tell me more. This school sounds complex, right? Attuned, picking up all the messages. And children actively learn how to remember in conversation. And Robin Fivish's work is just fantastic in this area. So from the second year of life, children start to attribute all sorts of characteristics to themselves. But you think about it. You think about the adjectives that you use to describe yourself. Where did they really come from? Was it your auntie? Was it your mother? You know, it's like you think they're true of you, but often they've been things that have been told about you, or those kinds of stories that are told and retold about you that carve your childhood identity. 
And kids don't spontaneously organise things as things that happened to me. That sort of ownership of memory is something that, that parents actively structure and in, engage in a lot. And this is the sort of initial conversational scaffolding that occurs with kids. And that's how kids learn their narrative genres. You know, they learn what they emphasise. And, and it's not just they learn their culture, they learn their society and they learn the specific subculture that is their family. Do you get punished for having too much of a good time? That kind of um, knowledge that you acquire very early on. So the responses of audience have long-term consequences for how you as a teller remember your experience. Normally, when we construct memories, unless we're really boring, normally we take into account our audience. We think, how much do they need to know? You know, At what level should I pitch this? And you would tell it in a different way, depending on the knowledge base of your audience. And this is really important. You know, it's really important, otherwise you can be given too much or too little information. And sometimes even thinking that you're going to have to tell a story later means that you pay attention in a different way. Like, you know, if you're, a, if you're writing for a local rag and you've got to write a review of a band, you might notice the, you know, what songs they, they sing in what order and who's playing drums that night in a way that you wouldn't if you didn't subsequently have to write it up. So sometimes just anticipating you're going to have to tell a story gives you more detailed, more unitary and more accurate impressions. I thought this was an amazing finding. It's an old finding, though, but it's cited in a recent article. But apparently both men and women prefer women as the recipients of disclosures, especially emotional disclosure, and apparently this is already present by early adolescence. I don't know if it's still true, but it was true in '94. Also, and this is, I think, something that we would all know the truth of. If you're talking to someone and they're really distracted, like they're looking at their mobile phone or looking at their fingernails or you know, checking the clock or feeling a bit hungry or something, you, you, you know, you, your sentences just dry up and go, you know, fizzle. You become disfluent, you talk for a short length of time, you're much less detailed, and, and sometimes it's hard to even end the story. You just want it all to stop, basically, because they're so obviously no longer interested. So the quality of listening is very a very powerful element to the, the formation of a story. And that's something that uh, Joseph Razor found, and I'm sure I've um, spoken to you about him before. Uh, he did the research into deaths in custody, and he found that it seems to be quite a disastrous combination, unfortunately, that... Um, in Aboriginal culture, there's a huge emphasis on storytelling. It's got to be received by, with proper feeling. Um, and if there isn't proper feeling, uh, it can lead to people feeling quite furious and enraged and sometimes engaging in catastrophic self-harm. So that kind of audience uptake, I think, matters differently across different cultures and have, has different consequences when it goes wrong across different cultures. Now, Sue Campbell has written one of my favourite books of all time, Interpreting the Personal, and I've put this chapter called Being Dismissed up online for you. She says, being dismissed is like being told to leave the room before a conversation starts. It's not being taken seriously. It's where the meaning that you want to have for your story is not taken 
in the context in which it was meant to have an effect. Okay, so I, I'll give you a personal example. The other day, um, my partner dropped my breakfast piece of bread on the carpet, butter side down, and didn't tell me. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so it gave furry tongue a whole new, you know, meaning. It was just gruesome. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, that. This is really terrible, you know. And then, and he confesses. I'm so sorry I dropped you on the car, but I, I thought I got it all out. Oh, gruesome, <laughs> you know. Anyway. Now, he had tape recorded the game the night before and didn't want to know the sports results, right? It's crucial, but he's got to sit through the hour and a half game. And if I had told him the sports results, it would just, ruin it, right? I was so tempted to tell him the sports results as retaliation for dropping my toast, but I didn't, you know, so I'm a goody-goody two-shoes, I didn't. So I posted it on Facebook instead that he had dropped my toast and I felt like telling him the sports results. And the result was fantastic, like everybody sort of like got into the light-hearted spirit of it. And I think the tattletale possibilities of Facebook, I've just left them, you know, underexploited until this moment, you know. Now, imagine if I did that and someone went, oh, oh, you know, you cow. You know, what it <laughs> you know, I'd be going, oh. <laughs> you see what I mean? That wouldn't be taking the meaning in the context that I intended it as lighthearted, etc. In other words, if someone just doesn't receive what you're saying or they don't treat it as a joke, which psychoanalysts always do, unfortunately. They never treat it as a joke. They're always looking for sex and aggression and deeper meanings and all that kind of stuff. They're real spoils for it. But, so what you sometimes want is for your meaning or your story to be received in the way that you intended it. Okay? And if someone doesn't receive it in the way that you intended, it gives them a lot of power. And can I just say that is one of the amazing sources of power for a psychoanalyst because they never take your story in the way that you intend it. They're always going to pull your story apart, ask awkward questions, you know, and, and get you to unravel the tightness and completeness of your own narrative. That's what they do. Okay. But you see, one of the crucial things about your story is that you're actually trying to communicate something of personal significance. Now, I don't know what label I could give you for the story I just told you. There is, it's not a heroic story. It's not one of despair. You know, it's a bit stupid, I suppose, you know, if you're really looking for cultural labels. But what I'm actually trying to convey to you is a bit personal, a bit idiosyncratic. It's a kind of unusual transaction, isn't it? You could find one word for it, perhaps, but I'm not sure. And so sometimes when people are telling you their stories, they're not just going to say, let me tell you about joy or let me tell you about excitement or success, they're actually telling you something that's... And they don't even quite know what they're telling you. Do you know what I mean? They're just, here's something and I need to tell it, and I don't quite know why I need to tell it. And if someone listens to you, sometimes why you're telling it forms in that very moment of listening and being listened to. So, oh, yeah, I understand. You know, that is a real issue there. So, in a sense, what a good audience does, it enables you to move away from just the carved-up emotional categories into more personal, unusual, inchoate, that is something that sometimes is outside of language, but you can find words for it. 
and finding words truly to capture your unique and personal experience is, is gold, basically, in life. So if you're a good listener, you've got a very serious skill on your hands, you know, because it will transform people. Because it's not as if emotions are prepackaged at the level of the bodily cloud, and that's all that emotions are. They've got to go up through the manner of attending to them, the significance I accord to it, whether or not it becomes conscious, can I um, express it with you even before I'm fully conscious, and let that feeling form and discover and know what it is. If you're working with someone who's traumatized, often that's what it's like. They are trying to find words for something that's been too frightening for them to face on their own. They're now able to share it intersubjectively with you. And they feel braver because you're there. You can help them to bear it. And they might even manage to find words for something that they've just avoided up until now. Okay. So in other words, they truly find the words to say it rather than just avoiding it and going, PTSD on it and having it flashing back and intruding. They might manage to make it conscious and be able to tolerate and bear it. So there's a lot going on here in having audience uptake, is what I'm saying. In other words, with a sympathetic audience, we can feel individuated. Like, my story's a very silly story. I don't imagine many lecturers have told you about their toast. <laughs> okay, it's a really silly story. But it does convey something, doesn't it, about chaos of my family life or, or whatever. In other words, I'm individuated to you as a result of that story in, in some ways. And that's what stories do. But if you had sort of got up and walked out and gone and got a coffee or something like that, it, I would have felt, oh, that wasn't a good idea. Gee, that was a really bad story. In other words, my impulse to tell the story would have been distorted or constricted. In other words, if you've got unsympathetic interpretive communities, if you're the storyteller, you're in trouble. So I don't mean to be political, and I really don't mean to be political here, but if you think back to um, when Julia Gillard so took Tony Abbott to task about him talking about sexism in the Slipper case, and some people thought she was heroic, some people said she had turned into the Incredible Hulk, and other people said she had thrown a hissy fit. <laughs> okay. Now... Those are interpretive moves. They are politically strong interpretive moves. If a really strong woman stands in front of you and says, oh, I don't have a hissy fit, you know, say, mm, I don't feel so strong anymore when you say I'm having a hissy fit. Do you know? But if you say I've turned into the Hulk, I might go, whoops, perhaps I overdid the strength a little bit here. You see how the metaphors, the manner of receiving that story, interpreting that story, can either make me able to stay with what I've just said or makes me want to back off in certain ways. It's a lot of power. And many individuals and groups are emotionally manipulated through exactly these kinds of hostile interpretive practices. Like if the minute you step out of line, you're called a whinger, you're not going to think, I've got a legitimate claim here. Nope, I'm a whinger, right? It disempowers you, cuts you off at the knees immediately. So it's all very well with the universal emotions where, we, you know, there are labels ready and waiting culturally for our experiences. Where you really need a good listener is where you've got these much more personal and these much more fuzzy experiences where the emotional expression only forms in the telling. 
And so neglecting the expression means that the effect of meaning doesn't form. I don't really come away fully understanding what it is I've just been through because I tried to you know, give it one set of meanings in the context of my listener and that didn't really work and so I'm left puzzled and confused in some ways. So you see, what I want to say is there's no way that I'm saying emotions are embodied end of story. I certainly think the body plays a huge role in emotions. I think the bodily clout, and I think there are individuated and different affects that arise at the level of programs. But my word, they can be shaped so many, you know, at so many junctures along the way, not the least of which is audience uptake, that highly sort of social activity of telling stories. It can either expand or restrict the significance to people of their own lives. And I think that's a really important thing. So the inner story, the self-telling, requires audience uptake or outer reception. And some stories never form, and some emotions never form. Now, one of the things that you silence people is you can call them names, but they won't notice that you're calling them names because you call them names that are such awful names that you don't want them to be true of you, that you quickly back away from whatever it was you were saying that got that name applied to you. So if someone calls, says to me, I'm having a hissy fit, I don't want to be called someone who has a hissy fit. That's a negative stereotype. If someone says I'm bitter, oh, I don't want to be bitter. If someone says I'm sentimental because I like pictures of kittens, I'm going to try and post a few less kittens on my Facebook page. I'm going to fail, but I'll try and post a few less with kittens. Okay. And if people say, oh, you're excessively emotional, I'm probably going to go, you're quite right, you know but I'm reflectively aware of that, and I'm cool with that, thank you very much. But you know, Okay, so in other words, these are all attempts to silence you and to cause expressive failure. It's a way of cutting off the discussion, in a sense. In other words, they're terms that are, are sort of tray words. They're trying to make it a personality issue, okay? And they're ways of characterizing emotives or people that express emotions. But they're train words that say, you don't need to take that person seriously anymore. They're throwing a hissy fit, or they're just bitter, or they're just sentimental fools. You know, It's saying they're not of significance. We don't have to worry about them anymore. And so you're trying to undermine the emotional significance that they're placing on something. But you don't want to face the emotional significance that they're placing on something. And rather than address the issue, you attack the person. But it doesn't look like an attack. It just looks like you're labeling them. Okay, and if it's a, a stereotype that's current, people will be agreeing with you before they've even seen what you're doing. So it's a very clever, sneaky tactic. Um, and it's very good to be alert to it so that you can resist its effect if someone is ever doing it to you. Oh, it's a really good thing. What I do, honestly, is I point out the mechanism. I go, oh, nice one. Wouldn't you love it if you could shift the focus from me focusing on the history of past wrongs and it suddenly just became a personality problem of mine that I'm bitter, not that I've been serially mistreated over 10 years or something like that. Wham. You know? <laughs> they can have another label, but you just keep going. In other words, you refuse the label and, and you show how strategically useful it would be if someone could deflect away from the issue without any kind of argument, but just by labelling. 
but you've got to see it quickly. And it's hard to see it because usually they're pushing your buttons in some way. So it helps to know your own buttons. Yeah. So if someone calls me highly emotional, it's not really a surprise to me. You know, <laughs> like surprise. No I'm kidding. Better, I don't know. I don't think so. But you know, I would. It might be strategic. I've got a long memory, and I remember things in enormous detail. And that might be seen as bitter in certain contexts if people don't want to listen. Do you know? So, but that's a good way to counteract is to expose the the mechanism. Often you don't have that kind of time. So I think the main thing is put your raincoat on. Don't let it hit. Like just don't take it on board for yourself. Even if you can't refute them in the moment. At least don't believe it. Don't believe that you're bitter. You know, stick with it. If it's your truth and your story, find another audience. You know, that's what I would say. And then go back to that. <laughs> I think it's good to have courage in that. And if no one is taking my anger seriously in terms of attempting to account for his or her behaviour or change that behaviour, but they call me oversensitive, I may be unsure looking back as to how to describe my own behavior. Did I have a point? Or was I oversensitive? What was the truth? Landscape of significance. I can say what I did. Landscape of fact. Landscape of action. But the significance of that, that's more blurry, huh? And that's quite difficult. And sometimes to let something rest, you have to be allowed your landscape of significance, the landscape of meaning. Otherwise, it just, you keep ruminating. That dirty dog, that dirty rat, you know, it's like, I've been done wrong. You know, that's what we sing blues songs about, isn't it? So, yeah. Okay. But if, if it's done for a particular group, like you think one of my friends has a, a very cool friend who set up the apartheid archive in South Africa, and we're going to be allowed access to some of those records. You know, it's very difficult for people to have memories of a particular epoch if they weren't the group that was in power. Aboriginal Australian um, knowledge of the remote past, like at the turn of the century, is highly truncated because not many Aboriginal events or Aboriginal people made it into the archives, and there are a few marvellous exceptions to that. But it's kind of like there's just so much we don't know about what, what went on because the personal didn't get turned into a public record didn't get turned into collective memory. So refusing uptake, it can be a very powerful political tool, basically. Because it shifts that focus, as I was just saying, from the past actions, so I don't have to look at my history of wrongs anymore. It's suddenly the psychology of the person doing the emoting that's the problem. It's my emotional style that's the problem. And it's done very swiftly, and it's done by labeling rather than by argument. So it's not like saying... Um, let me think. Yes, we did push you off your lands progressively over many years and take away your children. It's not actually addressing the facts of things. It's just going, you, you're a bunch of whingers. Right? We're not going to listen to you. Okay? And that's a terribly disempowering message for a, a group to be giving. So if you're portrayed as being on the edge of excess, hissy fit, hysterical, or already excessive. It destroys your confidence that your expressive acts will be met and that the hopes behind those expressive acts will come into existence. So if you're angry because you want people to treat your group better and you get powerfully labelled as 
excessive in some way, you're not going to feel hopeful that you're really going to bring about social change, so very distant past. So this is, what I love about this is she was writing this way before September 11. This was 96, I think. She says, Sue Campbell, the, the bitter are those who have not been accorded the luxury of cultivating sympathetic emotional lives, literally sympathetically listened to emotional lives. They're the angry disadvantaged of society, the visible minorities, the aborigines, the working class, the disabled, the ill, and the old. She said the bitter are those who are not in a position to influence politicians, bring lawsuits, make threats, or otherwise express anger irresistibly. And this is her line, that's 97. No one calls someone holding a bomb bitter. <laughs> it's just a great line. It's just really cool. Yes, it's really true. No one does. So angry or bitter, what's weird about it, do I have legitimate anger or am I bitter? It's my audience who can decide. If they give me uptake, I'm just angry. If they, if they don't give me uptake, I'm bitter and I've got to go and sort myself out. So in other words, the context and the interpretation determines whether or not I'm bitter. It's the audience and whether or not they're prepared to listen that determines whether or not I'm bitter, which I think is quite fascinating. So it's not mutual failure, because it's kind of unilateral. Calling somebody bitter makes one person wear it. And it's a condemnation of that person, and it's not meant to be challenging. It's dismissing them. It's telling them to leave the room. It's silencing. So that's what she means by being dismissed. And how to handle that, she says, wear it and say, I have a right to be bitter. Or the example she gives of a very angry Native American Indian woman at feminist conferences, and all the feminists said, we're so sick of your anger. She says, I'm not angry. I've got thunder in my soul. And she kept her thunder in her soul. She redefined it. So to accept that you're bitter is to accept that what you hope for is illegitimate. And that's not a great way to go in life. Um, she says sometimes a lot of pressure will be put on people who don't forgive. But sometimes the refusal to forgive is the refusal to break the chain of consequences that somebody else started. It's saying, I'm not going to forgive. I want remedy. I want repair. I want social change, rather than that it's just internal psychological work that I have to do. And that's why the people who become psychologists are not always activists in the world, but it's not an either-or. It's really not an either-or. And I think forgiveness is a fascinating uh, topic of research, because there's so many, there's a whole spectrum that makes up forgiveness, in a sense. Um, and it's a very rich literature. Okay, we're finished early. Yay! Thank you so much for your attention. That was Lecture 30 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie peterson The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. 